0: And we're going to spend some time in the book of Psalms, but before we do, I want to draw your attention to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, we will look at verses 1 through 9 there prior to going back to Psalm 89, so 2 Timothy chapter number 3. With the year 2020 in mind, <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no Further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. Verse 10, he says, thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, through furnished unto all good works. Lord, I pray that as we receive Paul's words, we would be as Timothy, doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we consider this psalter one more time as we anticipate closing book three of our heavenly hymnal. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts even in the midst of troublesome times. May we understand the days in which we live a little better and may our faith be strengthened as we say with the psalmist Amen and Amen. Lord, I pray you'll bless your word now and our partaking of the Lord's table to follow. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul taught Timothy that there would be perilous times. That is, there would be troublesome times. That they would come, and, and without a doubt, I mean, we're living in some troublesome times today, aren't we? I don't want you to go get depressed, but just read the newspapers. Okay, don't, because you... I mean, we, we hear of wars and rumors of wars, and didn't the Bible say that would happen? Jesus prophesied that would happen. Uh, we we cast our gaze upward. You know, we're told to, to look toward the heavens for our redemption draweth nigh. And so we we have a hope that we hold out, we we hold on to a biblical anchor of our faith, and yet we're looking for that trump, we're listening for that trumpet to sound, and for the archangel, the voice of the archangel. When he says those words, we hear our Savior, come up hither. No, that won't work unless he does it, right? I can hope, I can pray. There was a songwriter that put it this way, Robert E. Winsett, he penned it like this. Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedom we all hold dear now is at stake. Humbling your heart to God saves from the chastening rod. Seek the way pilgrims trod. Christians, awake. Jesus is coming soon. Morning, night, or noon. Many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. All of the dead shall rise. Righteous, meet in the sky. Going where no one dies. Heavenward bound. Troubles will soon be o'er. Happy forevermore, we'll meet on that shore, free from all care, rising up in the sky, telling this world goodbye, homeward we then will fly, glory to share. Sounds better when you sing it, doesn't it? You're singing it right now in your head if you know that song. As we continue our time savoring the Psalter, we come to the close of book three, Uh. I'm excited to be here because this means we're about to be in book four, and as we start climbing out of book four, we're going to approach book five, and as we get closer to book five, we're going to be seeing more hallelujahs along the way, and yes, we're going to take some time to go through Psalm 119, if the Lord allows, and He tarries His coming, but it'll be a blessing all the way. Psalm 89 is is a psalm that has interested me. It is tied to Psalm 88 via the the inscription. You'll notice that these are both Ezraites that write these two psalms. So there is a connection. When we studied through Psalm 88, it was one of the most difficult sermons I've ever delivered. Because it it is a psalm that is unique in the fact that there is no concluding praise. There's no concluding uh, uplifting. It, It just is... Is a dark psalm, but when you take them both together, it makes it a little bit better. So as you read through Psalm 88, and if you keep reading into Psalm 89, you read these words, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. One Ezraite, closed with lover and friend, hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. And the other Ezraite picks up his song right where he left off. Enter stage right, if you will, and I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Even the generation living in perilous times, in troublesome times, when things don't always make sense. Ethan the Ezraite. As you study Psalm 88 and Psalm 89, you can sense there's a there's a deep deep distress. An Ezraite would be one who is esteemed of great wisdom. First Kings chapter four and verse number thirty one tells us a little bit about that. Great wisdom. What wisdom? What discernment does it take for us as believers to know the times we're in? To have wisdom to face the day of trouble. I don't know what the original context was. It's not given in the inscription like other psalms. But there are plenty of things that we can think about through the Bible, can't we, that would fit Psalm 89. If I had to pick one to lean on, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but if I had to pick a, a time when this would have been written, my guess, please hear me well, it's a guess. That's all it is. My guess would be that David... The king of Israel has just passed off the scene. Solomon has taken over in his stead. Solomon has now passed off the scene and handed that torch to his son Rehoboam. You know what happens then. And as the Ezraite sits down to pen this song, he's looking at civil war. He's looking at a nation ripped in two. you realize the grace God gave our nation to stay united? That we are still one country and it's not the USA and the CSA? That was over 150 years ago, right? And we still, can I say, I mean, we still have the scars, don't we? The bloodiest thing that we've ever seen In our country, imagine what Israel was going through as the north was ripped apart from the south, the tribes splitting and parting ways under different leadership, Rehoboam trying to hold on to Judah and Benjamin and and the southern areas where Jerusalem is and the temple, and and Jeroboam taking the northern tribes away from God, far away from God and idolatry. The sins that Jeroboam would lead Israel, the northern ten tribes into, prior to their captivity of Assyria. If I had to pinpoint a time that I you know, would guess when this was penned, it would be when, for all intents and purposes, here's an Ezraite sitting down with quill in hand, with parchment before him on his scroll, and he's thinking about the state of his country, and he's he has serious questions. Because he knows the promises about David. And yet, where he looks, from his vantage point, for all intents and purposes, that Davidic covenant is as good as null. And yet, how can that be? Theologically, you understand, this just tears God apart. Because God cannot lie. God is a God who keeps his promises. And he promised very clearly and very adamantly that David's seed would be forever on the throne. of. And now, their nation stands ripped apart. And Rehoboam's reign is even being called into question. And there are other times, obviously, we could try to pinpoint, but... Um, I think reading it with something like that in the back of her mind helps. Maybe you want to imagine Jerusalem when it was sacked by Shishak, Pharaoh of Egypt. First Kings 14, 25 to 28, and 2 Chronicles 12, 1 through 12 will give you the backdrop for that. When Shishak and Egypt came against Rehoboam, Troublesome times. Now I do want to point out how the psalm closes before we get any further because this will help you see the divisions of the psalter. Again, we've looked at them before, but let's look at it again. The last verse, verse number 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. And here is your indication of book three's close. Amen and amen. If you want to see where the other books closed so you can take that. Go to Psalm 41. And you'll see the close of book two as book three opened. Psalm 41. At the end of it, we read, we read these words in verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting into everlasting. Say it with me. Amen and amen. For the close of book one, as book two would open, uh, that is the close of book one into book two. The close of book two, where book three would open, lest I confuse you as I already have, Psalm 72 would close book two. Psalm 73 would open book three. And so Psalm 72... In verse number 19, now don't let this one throw you off. You'll note it here. Psalm 72, verse number 19 says, And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Say it with me. Amen and amen. And then it finishes the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. So book one, book two, book three. Now we're closing book three. Getting ready to journey into book four. The boundary of the books, all marked with a similar call to praise, all marked with a double amen. Jesus liked to use a double amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you. What assurance. Now, as we look through this psalm, Psalm 89, some things that we would note, some of the language, the imagery that's here with the parallelism. If you look at verse number 12, for instance. The north and the south. Fits with what I was saying about Rehoboam, right? Jeroboam. The north and the south. Thou hast created them. And look here in verse 12. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. When we were privileged to travel to Israel, we got to see both of these sites. We uh, spent some time down south in the Negev in the desert areas down in Beersheba and and after we finished there, we went up towards uh, the Dead Sea and, and spent some time around Jericho. And then we made our way up the Jordan River towards the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, same, same lake. And uh, we stayed on the southern point of Galilee at a kibbutz there. And uh, it was a really nice, beautiful area. And um, as we went around the Sea of Galilee on the east side, we went by the Golan Heights and all that. We went through the countryside, the hills up in the north. We went to Dan, up in the northern part of the country. Uh, Green, lush, uh, the headwaters of the Jordan all form up there. One of the places that form the headwaters of the Jordan is at the base of Mount Hermon. And the psalmist talks about the dew of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest peak that you can find in the area there. Uh, Mount Hermon, uh, let's see, did I have that in my notes? Mount Hermon, where was that? It's, how tall is Mount Hermon? I wrote it down somewhere. I don't remember the number. I know Mount Tabor is like 1,900 feet, and uh, Mount Herman would be closer to like 9,000-something feet maybe. That would give you at least enough of a distinction. We understand that around here. we got how many 14ers in Colorado, okay, 10, 000, 10, tens of thousands of feet in the air. Uh, we go up to Treasure Mountain Bible Camp, and the camp is nestled at about 8,500, you know, miles up. And so uh, feet above sea level, excuse me, <laughs> miles the <up here. laughs> <laughs> off the charts. Uh, yeah, forgive me. Uh, so you see the polarity here. That's what I'm trying to point out. to you. The north and the south. We have a north pole. We have a south pole. We don't have an east pole. We don't have a west pole. We have a north pole and a south pole. We go north until we start going south. We go south until we start going north. Polarity. God created both of them. The north and the south. Hermon, the highest peak that the psalmist could imagine and write about in his country in his day and time. Mount Hermon, the pinnacle, the highest, as well as Mount Tabor, the smallest. You see the extremity? God is there in every bit of it, whether it's a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. We're used to the Lord. Now, I want to be a vessel of honor, and I believe Paul is in encouraging Timothy to be a vessel of honor. And there are ways you can do that for the Lord. But regardless, God gets the glory, whether it's a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. Paul said, anywhere Christ is preached, I rejoice. even if I don't agree with with everybody that's doing it and the way they're doing it. And there is a right way to do it, and I want everybody to do it the right way. But anywhere Christ is preached, I'm going to rejoice. Because somebody might get saved, amen? The contrast between the heights of praise, the depths of lamentation, On the mountaintop, we praise him. In the valley, we wonder, hey, by the way, the valley is where the fruit grows. I don't know about you, but it's hard to find anything growing but arctic stuff that can survive the tundra environment after you get past a certain elevation. It's a a special vegetation that's up there, and it's pretty sparse. It's down in the valley where you find the fruit. And so the depths of the lamentation. The heights of praise would, you know, if we divided the psalm, psalm 89, verses 1 through 37, you know, that's the part I like to preach. And many pastors will do that. They'll take psalm 89 and they'll preach verses 1 through 37 and stop there and leave everybody feeling good. And, well, you can go home and read the rest of it later, and I don't have to deal with it behind the pulpit. I can't do that, right? I've got to show you all of it. The rest of the psalm plummets. You have the heights of Hermon and the depths of Tabor. 1,900 feet versus 9,000 feet above sea level. On the mountaintops, we praise Him. In the valleys, we have questions. We wonder. And it's okay to wonder. God understands. He knows. He doesn't expect us to just slap a smile on our face and pretend like nothing's wrong when things are going bad. We need to deal with it. And part of my challenge for you through Psalm 89 is if you're in a time like that in your life, and if you're not there, you may come to one. We all walk through valleys where we have times where we wonder and we question. You may never verbalize it. It might just be between you and God. Let me encourage you. Deal with your doubts. Deal with them. Don't ignore them. They're real. And they're honest questions. It's not like you're, you're being stiff-necked against God when you're asking these. You're genuinely wondering and you're genuinely broken over what you see around you. That will bring you closer to God sometimes. Then any prosperity you'll face. Let God be God, even in those times that you don't understand it all. And we're still waiting for God to put the rest of the picture together, aren't we? Even from the psalmist standpoint, the Davidic covenant. Where's that stand? Well, it stands in limbo, we're in a period of waiting. Until that Davidic covenant is fully realized again. When the Son of God, when Jesus, our Savior, will descend from clouds of glory and come from Bazar and travel. And all that we read about in prophecy, he will come to to the, uh, the Mount Olives and put his feet on that mountain. And from there, once his enemies are dealt with, he will rule and reign as the Son of David. Thou, Son of David, have mercy on me. He will rule as David's son with a rod of iron and a scepter of righteousness from Jerusalem. Where's the son of his coming? All things continue on as they always have. Nothing's changed. You keep saying this Jesus is coming. Where is he? My answer is wait and see. He's coming. And I'm not backing down from that. You can doubt it. You can deny it. You can ignore it. But the Bible is true. And if I take a literal perspective on this, I have to see Jesus is coming again. And he will fulfill the Davidic covenant. But as of right now, we're we're not seeing it happen. No, we're seeing little snippets here and there, you know. We have Israel back together as a nation. The weather should be broken up again and brought back together again. I don't know. I'm I'm not a prophet or the son of the prophet, but I can observe the things that are happening around me, you know, like the U.S. Embassy getting moved to Jerusalem like it ought to be and different things of that nature that are occurring around me. I can see how God is moving pieces into place and moving nations and doing all these things that, well, it's going to line up just like the Bible said it would. But I'll tell you, as you look at the theology of Psalm 89, if you don't deal with your doubts, you're going to have to wrestle through some of what the psalmist is saying. Here. Because in, it's almost like in one breath he says, yeah, God keeps his promises. And then in the other breath he says, God's not keeping his promise. Because that's how he feels. The psalmist does. But does that mean God doesn't keep his promises? No. But do we still have the questions as to Lord I was looking for something that you were going to do, and it's not unfolding. Like, I thought it was going to unfold. We can all come to that. Theological crisis. One writer said it this way, Theological crisis is too cerebral a phrase to capture the anguish experienced when the unfailing love of God seems to have failed and when the faithfulness of God seems to have evaporated into... Unreliability. Throughout this psalm, do pay attention to the mercy. Well, it's translated like this. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. You know, old Jay Werner McGee says the little girl, that's the the jam (laughs) that's put on the bread when you ask for toast, right? Loving kindness. Loving kindnesses. Love that. What a beautiful picture. I just asked for toast and I got jam on it. Amen. That's good stuff. Jelly, whatever you like. Loving kindness, hesed, is the root word behind that in Hebrew. Hesed, the loving kindness. And then the other thing you want to know throughout the psalm, woven throughout the psalm as you read it and study, is faithfulness. Loving kindness, faithfulness. This is what we have to bring into our heart and mind. Is God's loving kindness still available? Is his chesed, has it expired? Well, the obvious answer is no, but we still have to wrestle through the question to get to that conclusion, don't we? The faithfulness of God. He said he'd do this, and he's not doing it. It doesn't look like he's doing it. Is he really faithful? Well, we know the answer, yes. In our head, we know he's faithful, but in our heart, do we really bring that into line with our head? Do we really feel like he's being faithful to us? I would encourage you, as you deal with any doubts you might have about his loving kindness, about his faithfulness, let your knowledge guide you, not your heart. In other words, let what you know lead the way. You'll be biblical if you do that. Because we're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't always feel the way that I like to feel. But what I know about what God says in his word, this is unchangeable. And if God promises to be faithful, then whether I feel like he's faithful or not doesn't change the fact, doesn't change the truth that he is faithful. If I'll just wait long enough, and that's the hard part, right? Maybe I'll see God. I mean, can we depend on him? Is he reliable? If he's saying he's going to be faithful and he lets us down, can I really depend on him? These are some of the things you've got to work through. Can I really rely on God the way that I'm supposed to? This will help you grow in in your faith. This will help you grow in your trust because you'll learn to lean on him more and to trust even when you can't see. This is the question, can God be relied on? This is the, the tormenting question. When what we experience seems to contradict what the Bible teaches theologically. This is what I know about God. This is what I'm going through. It doesn't line up. Is he really who he says he is? Did I miss something along the way? These are big questions. I had a moment in my Christian walk where I faced a question like that. Deep down inside. I didn't tell anybody about it. I just worked through it, prayed and sought the Lord, and I'm glad he, he didn't leave me. He, he was right there with me the whole way, and he loved me through my difficulties. And I've had questions that I've wrestled with. What if, you know, it usually would come up when I would start studying about what other people believed, you know, whether it was Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or you know, different things, different ways that people believe, different what you want, cults, religions, whatever you want—cults, religions, whatever—and the question that I faced was, "What makes me any better than somebody else?" I'm not. I know I'm not. And it probably came to a head when I was studying through the Gospel of Mark. I've shared this with the church before. When I realized I'm not any better than a scribe or a Pharisee, who 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 am I to think that I wouldn't be, you know, right there in their shoes, saying Jesus is casting these devils out by the power of Beelzebub? how would I know that I wouldn't be there saying who does he think he is saying he's God you can't no man is God he's a blasphemer how do I know I wouldn't be right there throwing rocks at him too I know better than them so as I study and see and see where people you know get these systems and whether it's Calvinism or this ism or that ism or this theology or that theology or this systematic thing or that systematic thing, uh, I just came to the part where I just said, okay, Lord, I'm going to your word, and I'm going to get it out of that, and whatever they tell me I am, based off of that, that's what I'll be. So that's why I'm a dispensationalist, because I went to the Bible, and I got my theology, and then they told me what I was, and so I'm a dispensationalist, because I'm a biblicist person, amen? And so that's, that's how I made it through some of these values, but the question I had to wrestle with was, oh, dear Lord, help me. And sincerity, I prayed, Lord, don't let me come to the end of my journey and miss this thing. I was, I had some grave concerns because, I mean, there are there are good Mormon people that are misled. They, they have the King James Bible. I can sit down and I can talk with them through the King James Bible. And yet they'll take this lens that they look through called Joseph Smith's contortions. I want to be kind but that's you know they won't listen to me if I tell them that it's what it is they'll, they'll cut me off and they won't hear me any further because I'll be of the devil with them but they they take that and they put this underneath it and they look through Joseph Smith's translations because well that's more full of them and they feel like they've got more of the pieces filled in that's how they approach this it's it's not whole it's not entire it's it's missing things that Joseph Smith and his prophets and all those with him said that they needed to fill in the gaps and By the way, there's no evidence to back up any of what Joseph Smith claimed. There's no texts. Uh, I I mean, there's a a Mormon institute over in Jerusalem that's engaged in archaeological work. They have not found any documentary evidence of any form of Nephi or any of these prophets that Joseph Smith said surely would be out. There's none of it. But what we can document is that portions of Isaiah... And portions of the Bible were intact word for word, just like we have them in our King James Bible, at least a century before Jesus was even born. We have documentary evidence for this text, but you see where my conundrum was? Who do I think I am to say that I'm any better than anybody I'm not? What if I get to the integral and find out I missed something? Dear Lord, I've built my whole life on this. I've built my whole faith and practice, and I'm trying to do a work for God on on this. What if I'm wrong? Now, I didn't believe God could ever be wrong, you know. But I know myself. Lord, did are, are you really, you know, did I get you figured out in your Word right? Did I miss? Are you really faithful? He's faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Because you come through Jesus. Even when you mess up, even when you don't get it all, God is faithful. Now, I gave you the end run. I came to that conclusion because God helped me in prayer and the Spirit, and I had it confirmed within me. This is what I know. And it's unshakable. I'm unmovable. And I pray that I'll always be abounding in the work of the Lord because of that grounding of faith. But this is where the psalmist has to wrestle. He says, you promised this. I'm not seeing it happen. My nation's being torn apart. You promised David would always have someone on the throne, and yet we're divided, and, and, and troubles come to Jerusalem. It's just not adding up. Lord, are you, can I really trust you? I want to say it's good stuff, but it's bad stuff in a good way. Are you with me? It's in those times where you get closer to God. And he reveals powerful things. I mean, we have terror threats today around us. We have riots going on. We have killings happening all around us. Other factors of great concern, 2020 an election year. Button your chin strap real tight. It's going to be a rough ride. It's going to be rough. Our country's very divided. It scares me to think about what could happen if we lose our moorings to the point that we're at odds like we were 150 years ago. God help us. We don't need more bloodshed. God help us. Let's be civil. Even if we can't agree, let's be civil. And let's be Americans first. And let's be Christians first, amen. And then Americans. But all of this going on, you know, we look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. It's a psalm written when troublesome times had come upon God's people. And I'll tell you, this psalm offers some wisdom on what to do, how to handle troublesome times when they're us. We can have confidence that our God and His said His loving kindness is unfailing. His mercies are certainly new every morning. But I want you to have more confidence in that. This psalm will help you. It opens up with a high note of praise. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. It's good for you to put scripture to song. My mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 89, that's a good hymn. The truth is taken right from here. That's how the psalmist begins. He says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord up until I don't want to anymore, forever, forever. So that's the backdrop. The psalmist is not reneging on anything that he is going to say about God's faithfulness. Let's understand that as the backdrop. He will sing of God's faithfulness forever. And so the questions he deals with does not negate God's faithfulness. Just because he's feeling one way doesn't mean... God is. Now, we learn a little bit of who, who God is in this psalm. We learn of his power and his omnipotence, and there's theology woven through this psalm. It's beautiful. But notice verse number two. I have said, mercy has said, loving kindness. Mercy shall be built up forever. How long? Yeah, you got it. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. And then verse 3, he continues on talking about the Davidic covenant. And so you have this host of praise to God, praising him for his faithfulness. There's no one like God. None can be compared to him. His faithfulness, how many ways has God displayed his faithfulness? He's been... Faithful as he's exercised his power. If you look at verses 9 through 13, he rules the raging sea, the waves. Uh, he stills the waves. Boy, isn't that prophetic? How many years before Jesus calmed the sea was this written? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Okay, uh, he's, he's broken Rahab. Uh, the commentators will tell you that's a uh, Egypt. Don't confuse it with the other Rahab of Jericho. One that's slain, thou hast scattered thine enemies with a strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, the world, the fullness thereof. Thou hast founded them, the north and the south. Thou hast created them, Taper and Hermon, shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm. Verse 13, strong is thy hand, high is thy right hand. He's been faithful as he's exercised his power. He's done it before, he could do it again if he wanted to. If he wanted to part the Red Sea, he could do it. He's done it before, he could do it again. How has he demonstrated his power? Well, he crushed the sea monster. He crushed Rahab. <laughs> I think there's a lot that goes into that. Jesus just summarized it like this He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Chew on that for the rest of your life. His power, his power is incomparable. The heavens and the earth, he spoke, and the worlds came into existence. How has he exercised his power? With faithfulness. With meekness. Hmm. His unfailing love, his faithfulness. Well, in Israel's case in particular, they got to see it firsthand when he gave them a king after his own heart. When they picked the wrong one, he gave them the one that would be best for them, King David. They have seen his faithfulness. They have seen him uphold his word. The covenant that he made with David, 2 Samuel chapter number 7. If you want the backdrop to it, it's clear. David would have a, a son to sit on the throne forever. They've got to work through some things because by the time you come to the genealogy of the New Testament, you find out Israel doesn't have a king on the throne by that time. The last king of Israel went into captivity and never came out, earthly speaking. And so by the time you come to Jesus, you have two genealogies listed because God did something miraculous. He kept his promise both ways. He kept his promise to David through Jesus, and he kept his promise to Jeconiah. That's a really bad one, really bad promise. Because he promised David he would have a son sit on the throne forever. He promised Jeconiah none of his children would ever sit on the throne ever again, period. God was done. And so, how does he keep both of them? <laughs> he did it. Because Joseph's adopted, keyword, earthly father was Joseph, descended from Solomon, descended from David. That would be the line of Jeconiah. And it's tragic that Joseph's biological son could not be the one to meet the promise of the Davidic covenant. But it can never happen because God made a promise to Jeconiah for his wickedness that he would never have a son sit on the throne. Yet, God is still faithful to David. How? Because you trace Luke chapter 3 and the genealogy of Jesus there and we find out Jesus is born of Mary who descends from David through Nathan, a different son. Thereby bypassing the line is recognized all the way back to day. God keeps his promises. He is faithful. We just have to let him work in his own time, not on ours. Powerful. And so this covenant promise is what's at the heart of the psalmist's questions in Psalm 89 because you can't see how it's all going to work out. Everything looks broken from his point. What does he do? What do we do in trouble sometimes? Number one, sing to the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. Verse number one, sing of the mercies of the Lord. Sing of them forever. Make known his faithfulness to all generations. I mean, there's so much that we can say about singing. Brother Mike encouraged us to do that earlier, to get involved in the music ministry, to use our voice for the Lord. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All ye saints, praise him, sing Music is a gift from God. We must steward it well. But music will be one of the first things that pulls you out of, out of what you're going through when you're wrestling these questions. Just go back to those songs. Let the Holy Spirit bring those back to your mind. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. You want some to put to Scripture? You know, you can put many to Scripture. But one way to help you. When you're at the bottom, one person said, "It's the same." Psalm 40, verse number three: "He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God." Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Psalm 144, verse nine: "I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, upon a psaltery and an instrument, 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 instrument of ten strings. I will sing, will I sing praises unto thee?" Ephesians chapter five, if you want the New Testament on it, verse number nineteen. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 says it like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How are you going to do that? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You direct your song to him and you sing not to an audience of people, but you sing to an audience of one in heaven. You sing to God. And you let your music, your song, your joyful noise, you let that come up before Him. He already knows you through and through. And I'll tell you, that song will become a prayer. And it'll work on you, it'll work in you. And God just might consider it a sweet-smelling savor, don't you think? Learn to use a hymnal. You know, I'm sad that I'm seeing more and more churches get rid of the hymnals and just go to the screens. We have the screens, and they're great. But I think it's too much of a crutch. Why? Because, I mean, we're getting away from even seeing music on the on the page. And it, it's true for me. I mean, I go to churches that don't have them. I'm looking everywhere I can because I want the notes. Man, I want to sing that bass line. I want to sing that tenor line, you know? You ladies, you want to sing that alto, or you want to sing that melody. And so by putting those parts together, we harmonize and we emphasize the melody, always emphasize the melody, right? Because that's where the message is. But that's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. And we miss that when everybody is singing in unison on the melody. We miss the, the, the support and the, you know, those, those bass parts that are singing on different parts in the alto that's doing this over there. It's the congregation becomes a choir at that point. And I just love going to churches that the churches know how to sing, and and you hear those congregations lift the roof. Off. You want a church that will do that. If you ever get a chance to be in Oklahoma City, uh, go to Southwest Baptist Church down there, and I'll tell you they they lift the roof off that building when they're singing hymns. Uh, one day maybe we'll get there and we can we can compete with that. But I'm telling you, they just they sing with fervor and gusto, and and you know they're singing to God and they're singing to the Lord and. And it just, I don't know, it just uplifts you. And I can't even describe how it makes you feel to be in an environment like that where everybody's singing the same, the same message and they're all convinced about it. It's powerful. It's one of the most powerful witnessing tools we have as a church for anybody that visits by the way. They come in and they see each of our church family lifting their voice up and singing to God like there's nobody else around but Him. And they're just singing to Him and singing with everything they have. Sing to the Lord. What do you do in trouble sometimes? Don't stop singing. Don't stop singing. Sing louder. Sing to him. Direct your praise to him. Secondly, praise the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, the heavens, Psalm 89, says, The heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Hey, if you want to get God's attention, maybe you should start praising him. You think? You might start listening. I think so. But thou art holy. Psalm 22, verse 3. Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Where does God inhabit? Where does he live? He lives in your praise. Why don't you start praising him more? What do I praise him about, Pastor? Praise him for who he is. Praise him for his salvation. For saving you. Praise him for his mercy. Uh, The list could go on and on. I could give you psalm after psalm for this. Praise God for how he answers your prayers. Don't let it go unnoticed. Praise God for heaven, that this world isn't all there is, that there's more yet to come, that, thank the Lord, one day it'll all be fixed. I don't know how long it'll take. It's on God's timetable, but one day it'll all be fixed. Thirdly, after you sing to the Lord, after after you praise the Lord, the psalmist teaches us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that from Philippians as well? Rejoice in the Lord, always, not some way, always. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 15. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength. The favor of our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense. The Holy One of Israel is our King. Joy is different from happiness, isn't it? Because happiness many times is hap. It's dependent on circumstance. Joy is not. Joy is something deep down inside. It's not dependent on circumstances. You can take away my happiness, but you really can't take take away my deep down inside joy. I've got the joy, 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 And so we rejoice in the Lord. Chesed. emuna That's his faithfulness. Note this. Throughout the psalm chesed is used a total of seven times. Seven is the number of completion. Another interesting note on it is that the last time it's used and the first time it's used in the psalm, it's both plural. All the other times, the five in between is all singular. Just little details like that stand out to me. Interesting. Seven times, like I said, first time, last time, it's plural. All in the middle, it's singular. There's a place for individual praise. There's a place for God being faithful to us as individuals and faithful to us as his people. God's going to bless you, singular, if you serve him. God's going to bless our church, plural, as we follow him. His blessing. Now, the other thing, the other side of that, his faithfulness. The word is emunah. Uh, That too. How many times is that word used throughout the psalm? Count it. Seven. God is completely loving kind. God is completely faithful. Seven times. His unfailing love, his faithfulness, again, woven throughout the psalm. So after you sing to him, after you praise him, after you rejoice in the Lord, then you do well to reflect or meditate, reflect on his promises. Verses 30 to 37, that's what the psalmist does. He reflects on his promises. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. You see loving kindness and faithfulness again? My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. And we have the end of this verse, the second verse in the psalm, broken up with the selah. Count the selahs and you'll count the verses in the psalm. This is a long one. It's a long verse. But it ends with selah. And how topsy-turvy is everything. Everything's flipped on its head in our world today. Things that that are happening, it's just mind-boggling sometimes. Is there really a bright future ahead of us? Is there really hope for tomorrow? Is Jesus really coming again? Yes, there really is. And it might get worse before it gets better. Yeah, but it doesn't change the fact that God's going to keep his promise. Jesus is coming again in clouds of glory. So what promises could we list as we... Meditate on his promises. What promises could we could we chew on? Could we reflect on? How has God promised to bless us? The list is endless. It's endless. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And so as we do these things, we sing, we praise, we rejoice, we reflect. That, friend, it's when you're to the place and the time, I think, everybody's different, but according to the psalm, if we follow the flow of it, That is when you'll be ready to deal with your doubts. If you deal with your doubts before you sing and praise and rejoice and reflect, you just might get the cart before the horse. And it might be a long time before you get out of that valley. But if you go into it prepared with who God is and what he's done, and knowing and fully assured that his word is settled in heaven, And all of it is nailed down. And when you're dealing with those doubts and you're in that darkness, it'll be harder for you to forget what you knew in the light. It just might help you get through the rest of the psalm when you deal with doubts about his unfailing love, about his faithfulness, his chesed. And so you see this in the signal here in the psalm after you get through verse 37. Every, uh, it was old uh, W.B. Riley used to say every but in the Bible is important. And this one's no different. Verse 38 says, but thou. But thou. I've done all this praising, and now I'm ready to come to the, the truth of what's going on in me. But thou, Lord, this isn't all had enough." One writer called it the pathos, the The agony of soul when life's experiences are called into question in light of what God said and and who he is. And we can get honest with ourselves about these inner things that go on. Paul taught Timothy, did he not? Perilous times would come. And he's the same man that said, rejoice in the Lord. Perilous times will come without a doubt, we're in trouble in many ways. We're not hiding from it. We're acknowledging it. We know these things are going on. We read the reports. We hear of things going on all around us. We have an election to be concerned about this year. I mean, that's enough trouble in and of itself right there. We're looking upward, and yet, what's going on down here, it's just in turmoil. How do we balance that? We're looking, we're We're looking for Jesus to come, we're listening for that archangel, for the voice of the archangel, we're listening for that come up hither, anticipating that someday, and yet, this world's in turmoil. We're waiting for Herman, we're living in Tabor. By the way, many think Tabor is where the transfiguration happened. Interesting. So when you're on the bottom, and it doesn't look like there's any way out, remember, sing, praise, rejoice. Reflect, and then deal with your doubts. Biblical, scripturally, and always come back to the Word. And we'd be wise to do the same thing that the Ephratite did when he was confronted with his doubts.